Run if you must. Hide if you can. Scream if you are able. But above all, if you are alone, don't let them catch you. The Slashers. Welcome to The Slashers, a podcast where three film critics with wildly different tastes delve into the golden age of the genre from iconic killers to deep cuts year by year to present awards. I'm Jason from Binge Movies. I'm Paul from The Countdown. I'm Megan from Spoiler Piece Theater. In this episode, we look at the movie year of Slashers, 1983. Our blood pool for 1983 is the French slasher fan film Ograf, a.k.a. The Mad Mutilator, which was released January 1st, 1983. We have January 1st, Angst, uh, which is an Austrian mass murder film. Uh, March 7th, Deadly Lessons, a.k.a. High School Killer, one of the first TV, made-for-TV movies we're going to cover in the slashers. We have March 18th, Sweet 16, May 11th, The Final Terror, July 12th, Sledgehammer, one of the first shot on shittio slasher films and horror movies <laughs> in general. And November 18th, Sleepaway Camp, the iconic camp classic. And I use camp in both senses of huh. the word. If you can't get enough of me and at least one of my co-hosts talking about horror movies this spooky season, you can go over to the Binge Movies feed where Paul from The Countdown joins me to rank in a two-part episode the entire Hellraiser franchise. First episode, Paul is drunk. Second episode, Paul is angry. <laughs> Give it a listen. Actually, somewhere in there, Paul is defending and, and Jason is on playing some really, really full-on hardcore offense. So uh, you that's, might get to hear uh, yes, a different that's side of things. true. Yeah, if you want to see me be Negatron and Paul defend dog shit and, uh, instead of what I normally <laughs> do here, then go over and listen to the Hellraiser. So we covered 1982. That was a two-parter. Let's get back to 1983. Let's dive into it. What do we think of the slasher genre as represented by our current blood pool in 1983? Megan, let's start with you. Oh, for fuck's sakes. This is brutal. (laughs) (laughs) This has been brutal. Every year, every blood pool, there have been some surprises and delights and gems. If, If these films are representative of what's happening in the landscape of slashers, it's downhill. We've, we've gone global. We have gone global, which is exciting. And we've gone to TV, the American broadcasting (laughs) company, which we'll dive into that. And, you know, and I will say, and we'll get into this more, I'm sure, when we discuss each individual film, but just as an overview, I will say the international entries are horrific, but intriguing. And it's very compelling to see what other filmmakers from other parts of the globe are doing and interpreting the slasher genre. So that's exciting. But yeah, this is this was a rough year for me. Yeah, Paul. 100% 100% correct, Megan. <laughs> Jason and I go back a long way. Yep. And I've tried very hard not to hold him responsible for some of the things that he's made me watch over the years. Over the decade. But I don't think <laughs> yeah. I've been any more angry and upset with Jason than I was during this watch for this episode. 
with some of the shit that he trolled out here for us to watch. I was, I'm like, he is absolutely trolling us. He has been laughing the whole time. This was a whole six episode long lark that was building to this point where Jason was going to sit back and laugh his ass off at Megan and I for having watched this and then laugh his ass off even more as we try to try in most of these cases. I do have one and a half exceptions to this. Maybe two and a half. I don't know. But look, there's some, there is legitimately, arguably, two of the worst films I've ever seen in this blood pool. <laughs> and that is no word of hyperbole or exaggeration. I am absolutely aghast at the state of cinema by this stage in our golden run of the slashes. Our mission, when I pitched this to you, Paul, <laughs> was to do a comprehensive but not exhaustive because it's damn near impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. 300 slasher films made just in the 1980s in the United States alone. Compare that to around 70 in the 70s, maybe 60 in the 70s, and then compare that to like 30 in the 90s, right? So this is, and we are in the bulk. Most of them were made from 1980 to 1984-ish, right? Right mm -hmm. around there. So to be comprehensive, we have to cover everything, including international flavors and to Megan's point. That's fun. Their reinterpretations of it. Well, these are the international options. We also have to cover this thing, and we'll, we'll get into it when we get into the movies, of Shot on Shidio, which becomes another boom period because by 19... 83, the vast majority of American consumers are starting to get VCRs in their home. And we're now at the mm -hmm. true beginning of the home video revolution, which changes yep. of all genres, the horror genre, the most. Because people start being able to make films that go direct to video. And then people figured out we can make movies direct on video <laughs> to direct mm -hmm. to video. Which, whether you think that's good or not, it allowed another wave of outsiders to start making movies, which is really how this entire genre existed. And at the same time that that's happening, we're seeing, like we talked about last time, it went from transgressive exploitation, outsider drive-in, midnight movie schlock, by and large, or at least that's how it was interpreted, most of them by the critics and so forth. So now it's on ABC, the Monday night movie of the week, which is... <laughs> Very heavily inspired by slashers, which is just insane that in three years, we've gone from death screams to deadly lessons. You know, it's nuts. It, and it just shows you how pervasive and and in my opinion for 1983, getting to my point, how tired the genre was by 1983. Mm. This genre needs a new and we see we talked about in the last episode, right? You see that they're trying to like, well, what if it's a slasher and this and, you know, they're right. trying to add all these these elements yeah. to it and that, there's even some of that here in 1983 and there's a movie right around the corner by a famous yeah. exploitation director yeah who's going to give this genre uh uh basically a shot in the arm and the rest of the decade is going to be ripping ripping him off so yeah yeah we, we've 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 come to the death dying breaths of the <laughs> halloween and texas chainsaw massacre knockoffs and black christmas knockoffs and now we're we're Something original has got to crop up here, and we'll see if it's this this year. I don't think it is. I think it's 1984, of course, but I still think there's a lot to talk about in 1983. So let's kick it off. Megan, we have Ogroff, the Mad Mutilator. <laughs> an 
eight millimeter French film conceived by NG Mount with the name that he went by, but it was actually like Montier, who was a video store owner in around Napoleon, France, mm-hmm. who was obsessed with American slasher films and decided, well, you know, I love these movies so much and my customers love these movies so much. Why don't I just make one of these movies and be able to rent it directly to them? And he went out into the woods with no sound equipment, no, no script, <laughs> an eight millimeter camera, no experience whatsoever, no and, shit. De- and decided to make this movie. Uh, what did you think of Ogroff, the Mad Mutilator? So <laughs> this was such a surprise to me that I actually found this kind of delightful. <laughs> A lot of people do. A lot yes, of people do. Yes. I can see why because I, yeah, I love a film that, especially if it's an action film, and, and this is a horror, of course, but I love when an action film can tell an entire story as if it's almost a silent film. And yes. this film very much does that. And not there's not a lot of dialogue. There's arguably not a lot of acting, although there's some, of course. <laughs> and there's something about that that really... I appreciate it. I love that it's kind of boiled down to its visuals. Yes, I wish they were tighter. Yes, I wish they looked better and not so, you know, blurry and fuzzy at times. But, you know, it it is on 8mm. It is an older film. And, but the ideas are there. And I, again, we keep coming back to filmmakers mining the depths of PTSD and dealing with the ramifications of veterans. And of course, the specter of the Vietnam War still looms very large. And this really, like, yes, this is brutal. Lots of limbs being chopped off, lots of torture. But it very much reminded me in a visceral way of Phil Tippett's Mad God, which I Mm. absolutely adore. I love that film. It is disturbing. It is weird. It is visceral. It is haunting. And I saw kind of, I don't know if Phil Tippett was inspired by Ograv, but I saw kind of a Mm. connection there that there's some similarities that they share in kind of a a visual commentary on the horrors of war and how you can never escape them. And like when the when the bodies are coming out of the ground and yeah. chasing Ograf and chasing the woman that he has affection for, it very much is a visual representation of how you are haunted and how your demons follow you until you deal with them. And even then, you are forever changed by trauma. And so for me, I enjoyed this and I found a lot to find really compelling and intriguing and a lot to unpack in this. So I was very pleasantly surprised. Megan is one of my favorite people to spar with intellectually about movies. Oh, thank you. Because Jason. she's, even when we don't agree, she's always, she always has a brilliant point. And when we do agree, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the smartest kid in the room. So <laughs> for those that don't know this movie, which might be a lot of people, it's a French, I assume French, it could be American, whatever. A soldier who goes AWOL because during the war, doesn't realize the war is over, disappears in the woods, becomes a crazed lumberjack who <laughs> hacks and axes every man, woman, and child 
the first death in this movie is a child being axed to death. Oh yeah, three minutes. Uh, and he lives in a jerk shack where he's <laughs> making stew out of people and cranking his axe as if it were a phallus. Literally, um, yes, literally. <laughs> Literally, that scene is wild. <laughs> Anything that was subtext is just text in this movie. Yes. <laughs> um, he maybe falls in love and maybe one of his potential victims falls in love with him because she starts doing like housekeeping. Yeah. And then the movie ends up becoming a entire history of horror movies, not just yes. slashers. You could trace all the way back from Universal all mm-hmm. the way through to the modern slashers. Zombies. Zombies, the Romero, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, Paul, I have I have a, more thoughts, but, Paul, I want to get to you. No, no, please. You, you, you hate the movie. Oh, you want me to go? Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, about eh, halfway through this movie, I'm sitting here and I'm going, okay, I finally understand what Siskel and Ebert hated about slasher movies. You know, there's there's famous rants you can find on YouTube where it's like, it's all it is is senseless violence and you know all this sort of stuff. I'm thinking, okay, I fi- I finally understand why like the I finally get the critical consensus of the time that these movies are nothing but just crude, shoddy garbage. <laughs> and then it clicked what this actually is. It is crude, it is shoddy. But the movie is a love letter to horror movies. And so it's a love letter to the slashers, obviously, slasher films of the era. But like I said, it ends up then going back into, we go from, you know, Jason Voorhees to Leatherface. It goes from Friday the 13th to Texas Chainsaw Massacre to George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. And then you think about, like, what was George Romero? He's an industrial regional filmmaker from outside the Hollywood system who wants to make a movie. And that's obviously part of the inspiration of a lot of the stuff that we've seen Romero has huge, 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 you know, uh, uh, a shadow over, even though he didn't do slashers per se, he's most known for his zombie movies. He's, he was such an inspiration, obviously giving Savini his start and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's obviously an inspiration here. And then the movie ends with a Catholic bishop or priest picking up the, the, the female protagonist of the film who ends up surviving. And then the whole turn where Ogroff, who is our killer, ends up becoming kind of our action protagonist and yes. fighting off either war victims or his victims. I don't know, but they're zombies. Mm-hmm. And then he's like protecting the woman with his axe or the zombies. <laughs> it's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> You've never, uh, unless it's like, um, oh God, what's the, what's the Genesis game? The, the, Splatter, Splatter House or something like that, where you basically play as Jason Voorhees. Unless it's something like that, we've never had a movie where the villain has a turn halfway through and becomes the protagonist, the hero. It's crazy. <laughs> then he becomes the villain again. It's so wild. Yes. <laughs> At the end, she's killed by Dracula. She's killed by yeah. a universal horror monster who's who, by the end of it, is in classic universal regalia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought, boy, this is a... What this actually is, is it's not a movie. It's maybe arguably one of the first fan films ever made. And I wrote a, a thing about that in uh, over on our Patreon, patreon.com slash binge movies, cheap plug, different podcast. But when you look at the lens of this is a fan film and genre fans have always had a, a kind of a more obsessive relationship to the material they love because it's, it's always sort of been derided, whether it was Star Trek or right. science fiction or Isaac Asimov or whatever, they've always wanted to be a part of it. 
whether that's writing fan fiction, whether that was putting together fanzines. Some of the first fan conventions were put together mm-hmm. by fans of cosplay. defunct properties. Yeah, cosplay. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. This is all of those things before we had a lot of language for it. And so on that level, it totally flipped around in my head. If you judge it as a movie, it's dog shit. If you judge it as a love letter to this genre that we're talking about and the broader horror genre and just some guy's fandom on display, it's kind of endearing, like Megan was saying. It's kind of charming. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, God bless this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, Paul, shit on uh, the, who recently passed away, I think in 2021. Shit on, uh, shit on our guy's dreams. Uh, with pleasure. Look, I'm glad <laughs> that the two of you derived some pleasure out of this particular film. But this is honestly one of the absolute worst films I've ever watched. I've seen fan films. I've seen Predator fan films. I've seen Alien fan films. I've seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I've watched feature length Friday the 13th fan films. All well, some of, of those are good. Bring, bring something to the table. And arguably in a couple of cases are genuinely excellent films. Had I watched this with a, oh, this is a fan film mindset, it might have bumped it up half a star maybe. You have to be competent, at least with what you're trying to do. Forget the super eightness of the film, it's which makes it almost incomprehensible in places. But if in the opening scene, you've got four different stages of lighting for every character that they show and just mash it together. And then every time we cut away to that to some gloved hand in an engine doing some shit, which doesn't pay off until the last 10 minutes of the film, because it turns out to be some vampire where we're cutting back Quentin Tarantino style jumping around timelines. There's no rhyme. There's no sense to this. Yes, zombies pop up halfway through, then a vampire pops up at the end. Olgroff himself goes from murdering everyone to deciding after he cranks his his axe, maybe I do want to have a little woman around the house. And she incredibly decides this is a good idea. She doesn't yeah, yeah. run the moment that she can. She just gets on board. This is domestic bliss. What a what an amazing! I could just—I was walking through these woods. I don't know why we're there. We never find out why she's there. The implication is she has something to do with the family that disappears at the start of the film. It's never explained because the film's not good enough to bother with that kind of shit. But she just gets on board. She gets raped, and that presumably because the film's, as you said, not very subtle about these things, but it has lots of really shitty zoom ins at a point, and one of the worst sound designs I think I've ever heard. If I have to hear one more crane uh, chain clanking when he happens to be at home. <laughs> Fuck me. I was infuriated by this film. And then she just hangs around. She's hanging out the washing for him. And then the zombies rise up because, of course, they do. There's no explanation for it. Just the dead have come back. Presumably, they are his victims. That's what I took it as. And he's been burying. But he was also feeding them at whatever point. Again, nothing makes any sense in this fucking film. Nothing. And then she runs away. And then Olgroff is angry. And he's chasing her and trying to smash the window to get it. Like, she's running from zombies, you dickhead. What else do you want her to do? But he's mad, uses a mutilator, so he tries to kill her. Now he's bad again, but only after he kills a whole bunch of zombies. And if you really like shots of zombies lumbering towards a camera really, really slowly for like, this film goes like 75 minutes, 40 minutes of it is zombies lumbering towards a camera with nothing going on. <laughs> it's so bad. Oh, God. <laughs> about two-thirds of what you just said is what I find charming about the movie. Oh, I think this and movie... What happens, what happens to Ogroff? He just disappears from his own film. Kills oh, a few zombies. Fine. And he's I, gone. I, I... <laughs> Fucking Hogroff. Where'd you go, mate? I think that this movie has and will continue to play spectacularly well in weird movie and amateur filmmaking festivals. Found, you know, found on VHS festivals. There's all at least around the United States, there's all of these sort of cult movie festivals, weird movie festivals where things 
wow, I said things, where movies like 1989's <laughs> Canadian monster home invasion movie Things, stuff like that plays. Um, I think this would play, this would be a great double feature with something like Things, which I'm sure I've been trying to get Paul to watch for years. And I'm sure he would hate. If you think that's this movie's discombobulating, whoa, you need to watch 1989's Things. Yeah, I, 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 do. I just, I found, I, I think there's a subgenre of slasher fans and horror movie fans and genre movie fans and you want to call them bad movie fans or weird movie fans. I think this movie, if they, if they haven't already seen it, which most of those folks already know about this movie, then if you're in that camp and you like just weirdo, <laughs> odd <laughs> cinema that's outsider, this is for you. And Paul is diametrically opposed to all of those things. So don't listen to him. Listen to me. <laughs> hey, and me too. Save your eyes. <laughs> and Megan, yeah. Save, save your... Oh, apparently it's 90 minutes this film. It felt like seven hours. You know, save your time. Save your efforts to find it and just watch anything, any other film, I beg of you, in the entire universe. I would argue feeling like a long time <laughs> is the point because it's oh, putting God. you in the mindset of trauma. Just saying. <laughs> You are reading way too much into this film. This is like this is like an English lit class when you sit there and I can't remember who it was. It might have been Hunter S. Thompson, Fear and Loathing Las Vegas. And someone's like, oh, Hunter S. Thompson, did you write this to me? This is just like, I just want to write a good story, man. I don't, I don't give a shit about that. that oh, totally. But here's the thing. Once a piece of art goes out into the world, all interpretations are it. valid. So Correct. <laughs> So I'm not saying the filmmaker intended all of that. Although if he didn't, why make him a veteran? You know, it's like I, I think there are certain things that are intentional. Because he he wanted to have a reason to have a whole bunch of dead bodies in, under <laughs> his dilapidated house because he suddenly lurched back to life. Anyway, anyway, I'm glad you two derived much more enjoyment out of this night. You started <laughs> off on a better foot than I did. Let's put it that way. <sighs> well, moving on from one of the worst movies Paul's ever seen. <laughs> one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. Uh, let's talk about Anx, which also came out in January of 1983. It's also known as Fear. <laughs> this movie is an icy trip inside the mind of a recently released criminal psychopath who invades the home of a woman, her mother, and I guess it's her brother? Would that be her brother? Mm. Is that how we interpret the man in the wheelchair? That was my assumption. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's partially inspired by a real Austrian mass murderer. The movie is known for its cinematography. If you haven't seen it, I would say uh, it's somewhere in between the worst parts of Clockwork Orange. By worse, I mean the most like violent. Uh, and Manhunter, it has a weird kind of mm. Michael Mann, Manhunter kind of vibe to it. And I cannot stress this enough, Paul. I like you to back me up here, and Megan. This is not a titillating, goofy romp of fun kill gags nope, and no. bad acting. And we can—it's like well, we we're enjoying the the smoke and mirrors of it all. This is pure European art house sicko shit. <laughs> this movie has long—I mean, it's, it almost feels like the whole movie is a one shot. It isn't, but that's what almost what it feels like. It is claustrophobic. I mean, it is unrelenting. And that's part of the point is we are in this sort of almost vaulted godlike position looking at this horrendous violence and nothing is going to stop it. And 
Woo. It's Paul. I, 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 you know, trigger warning, right? Like don't watch this. (laughs) If you, this is, this is not a fun, it is a slasher, but it's not a fun slasher. Yeah, I think at the start of the episode you said, or you referred to as a mass murderer film, which is probably closer to the mark because yeah, maybe you could argue that about all slasher films that take place in a short period of time. This is very much localized to one house once he gets there, one house, one family that he this this guy terrorizes. And we get one, the you, you mentioned this sort of dreamlike state. The camera is constantly up above him and it's tracking along almost as if it, you are in this sort of different plane or you're this spirit that's watching this whole thing unfold. Yet at the same time, we are treated to his internal monologue as he very matter-of-factly just talks about the fact he's going to murder people because that's what he wants to do. And he is a complete sociopath. He's a complete psychopath. And he has no moral compunction nor doubts about it whatsoever. The moment he gets out of prison for having murdered someone at the very start of the film, he just goes back about it again. And part of what makes this film so disturbing is they have this guy, had him locked away, and then because the system demands that, you know, he must have now paid his dues 10, 15, I can't remember what it was, 15 or 20 years later, we have to release him because that's what now has to, and he just goes straight out and picks up, picks up right where he left off. But it's the manner of his crimes and the way he goes about it that is really the most disturbing stuff whilst we're getting that internal view into his world. And again, I don't want to say why he did it, although the film makes a very, does explain it from his perspective, but you're never meant to understand. You're never meant to be on side with it. You are meant to be repulsed and horrified. And the film does this very, very well, I think. So yeah. in stark contrast to Mad Mutilator, I think this film is highly effective, very disturbing. And if you can stomach it, it's worth watching for that alone. Megan? Yeah, this whew, this is a brutal film. Um, I agree with everything that you said, Paul. And this was an extremely difficult film to watch. It's very interesting because the sense that he is narrating the entire film were inside his head. He's telling us what he wants to do, telling us how alluring it is to torture people and to kill them and the way in which he wants to do so. But yet there's something about it that he there's something about it that for me made him a very unreliable narrator, very similarly to Humbert Humber in Nabokov's Lolita, where like when he's talking about women and how, oh, they wanted it, oh, they they did it to themselves or, oh, they mm-hmm. they looked at me a certain way. Like, it's, he's very much an unreliable narrator. We are very much – there's nothing sympathetic about him. There's nothing mm-hmm. – there is no compassion within him. We are not to have any compassion for him. And mm-hmm. we are with him the entire time. And this is a very intense and, – and that's an understatement. Like, I, I'm struggling with my words because they're really – I don't feel there are adequate adequate words to describe the experience of watching this and watching what a monster he is. And that even that is an understatement. Um, he is so calculated and just brutal. There is no remorse. There there is no real rationale other than he just wants to do it. He just wants to kill and that's it. And I will say in a weird way, it's kind of I don't want to say refreshing, but for lack of a better word, refreshing, because so often when we have a villain, we are made to empathize with them or to find some commonality or something, which I think is arguably a part of human nature to do so, because it's almost unfathomable to imagine someone who's so completely devoid of anything good or positive. 
And terrifying. Yeah, it is. It is. And so this was such an uncomfortable watch, but the cinematography is exquisite. It is so visceral and it is masterfully done. And yeah, I will say that the one good thing that happens, I guess, is that the dog is okay. And because I kept waiting for something horrific to happen to the poor little dachshund and the dog is okay. But other than that, like everything is just exhausting and horrifying and awful. But it it, it is a really well executed film. Yeah, I mean, this is a a movie, at least stateside, and I don't, probably globally. You know, this is on Mubi, right? And Mubi is mm-hmm. known primarily for its art house prestige cinema. You know. There's a reason why it's on there, um, it, despite its content. It's on there because it's almost inarguably, from my perspective, probably the best shot, best directed movie we've covered in the entire show so far. I mean, I think this is yeah. expert filmmaking. But the alternating, vaulted, distant, cold stare down to the... I don't really know how they did this in 1983. It was just the other thing that's staggering kind of that steady cam on his body camera up and in his face as he's moving around that alternating is like we're either we're made so uncomfortable by just being in this static vaulted godlike position kind of looking down at an angle as just horrific things are happening and then as you reach maximum discomfort with that it then like puts you in his face you're like mm. god damn like just and there is absolutely and the, the the movie we never we hear his psychology but like when he's like eating the sausage and he's at the cafe and the movie never like shows us what he sees in the the women's behavior we never see from the vantage point of the psychopath that in his mind oh the women are c- coming on to him and that's why he wants to murder it's just there's just two people sitting at the end of the counter. We were like we were always locked in objective reality as his subjective nonstop narration is going on, and that disconnect between what we are Dichotomy. clearly seeing and what he is thinking is wildly uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. the entire movie, I, I think, is very obviously sort of a condemnation of the criminal justice system in Austria. Yep. Yes, because it's like, well, you know, he knew what he did, so he can't he can't be insane. So he just needs to pay his debts to society and then we'll let him out. Literally walks out of prison, gets attacked, goes to the cafe and plotting murder. Yep. Getting into yeah. a taxi. And, it, and if he hadn't fumble fucked, it would have killed that woman with a shoelace. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. within minutes, within hours of being out, he's killing or wanting to kill again. And the other element that makes such a reality to it is. Movie villains often have like this finesse to them. They're often presented to us in a way that they're kind of cool. You yes, know, like yes. there's nothing cool about or attractive or anything about this guy. He is fumbling his way as vicious, as cold, as calculated as he is. He fumbles his way through this home invasion all the way through to the point where he ends up having to drag corpses and disabled people across broken glass that he broke inadvertently it's like the whole thing is just fucked up he struggles to drown the one person he's he the 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 grandmother the mother 
goes into like a catatonia and, or is possibly dead. And he's like shoving pills in her throat because he wants to rape, uh, rape her. And it's, but she's dead. And it's, it's so horrendous that it adds a level of realism to it because it's actually hard to move a dead body or okay. uh, somebody who's fighting you and resisting you. You are going to get fucked up. You are going to make mistakes. If you know anything about real crimes, the murderers, even psychopaths, often vomit at the scene of the crime. He vomits at the scene of the crime. You know, that, that whole thing in that corridor with the, the actual main woman, and he wakes up the next day on her bloody dead body, and he's puking on himself and pulling his pants up. And, oh, is, I'm with Megan. There are no words to describe how chilling, disgusting, and effective this movie is. And I mean that both in terms of praise and in terms of warning. I, for me, this is a one and done. I've watched it once. I will never watch it yep. again. Oh, it's it's an ex extremely excellently made movie, but it's almost too effective. Yeah. Right. It's Gerald Cargill, the guy who directed this film, co-wrote it and directed it along with the cinematographer. I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name. He never, never directed another film. He was blacklisted from Austrian cinema. No one would hire him ever again. No one wanted to see anything he ever did because they were so disturbed by this film. Now that is some kind of legacy that you effectively made a film that's so good at what it's aiming to do that no one will want you to make another film. I, Megan kind of alluded to this. I don't get the sense that like the director is, you know, sometimes we see movies that try to be like sicko movies and it's like they try to push the boundaries for the point of some sort of perverse enjoyment. I don't take mm -hmm. that, that that's what this movie is. I think this movie is trying to no. be a real, realistic depiction of what these people are like and the danger they pose and the brokenness in the criminal justice system. I don't think the director or the cinematographer wants us. I don't think they're like, yeah, yeah. I, right. I don't get that. I don't get a creepy, you know, leering vibe from any other direction. I think it's like, there's something wrong with the criminal justice system. These are partially based on real events that were happening in Austria because, you know, there, there were people who were being just set loose in the community and wreaking havoc and, we're filming it and we're going to show it to you and, and, uh, and unrelentingly. So, you know, and even in the end, it's like the, 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 the sort of cold psychological criminal justice monologue at the end of or they like, we've just watched this inexplicable shit and they're like, well, you know, his mom was mean to him and all of that. Like, it's a, like, you don't buy it even at the end, which is the point you're like, come on. Right. Like, and it's like, well, you know, we have, we give him life in prison or whatever, but it's like, God damn. Like if you had just kept this guy, confined or done something these people would not have been brutalized like this guy's not fit for society he never should have been in the public and that's i think what we're supposed to feel at the end it's sort of an outrage of like the system is broken here you know what is yeah, how is, can it be so fucked up how can it be so fucked up and and the, the fact that the the psychological analysis in the criminal justice report is as cold if not colder than his narration it's just like we've just watched this stuff that's not cold, that's hor horrendous. People fighting for their life. We've watched a disabled person in a wheelchair be drowned. We watched an elderly woman be assaulted. We watched a woman be terrorized through her home by this monster. And at the end, it's just sort of like, well, he experienced trauma with his mother and she shamed him. And so, like, it's just like so out of touch with. The, the suffering of real people. And I think that is the yeah. point. It's like how both the killers and criminal justice system are out of touch with the horrendous nature of yeah. these crimes. It's a shame that he ended up getting blacklisted for it. But 
Oh, oh God. <laughs> I just, this, I mean, even as I'm talking about it, it, creeps me the fuck out, man. This is a creepy fucking movie. Oh. It is. It is. I think, Jason, I think you articulated something perfectly that both that ending, that psychological analysis, and the killer's narration, it, it, they're completely dehumanizing That's it. the victims. And yep. you're right. So I think, I think that I don't get the sense that the filmmaker nor the cinematographer are in any way glorifying this yep. or glorifying violence, which is no. often a question I have from some filmmakers, you know, yep. and you, yep. you you can't always know, of course, what a filmmaker's thinking, but sometimes I'm like, well, you know, what's on the screen is very telling. This, I do not get that sense at all. Yeah. And the horror film critic, Megan Navarro, compared this to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. That's and a good comparison. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, but I very much think that I don't know if it was just that the filmmaker wanted to condemn the criminal justice system or if he also wanted to try to understand why people commit these heinous crimes or, you know, or if it was a commentary on our cultural embrace of slashers and violence or maybe all of it or maybe none of it. But I think that the film very effectively is not glorifying violence and not glorifying killers. But yeah, God, this is a this is this is definitely a watch. I am also one and done. Never want to see this again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's so interesting to me as I was watching it, you know, because eventually he does kind of get a knife and different slashing elements, and I'm like, it's so interesting that you're watching this. And it's like, on the one hand, we can you can contextualize that puncturing weapon of a knife or something, and it's to use your term again, it's like all, all this sort of operatic gusto of Italian giallo. And there's almost a beauty yes. to it of the yes. slashing of throats and blood going, you know, and it's like, there's like a, a fun beauty, artistic quality to it. And then mm -hmm. in America, there's sort of this sort of goofy cartoony brutality, you know, it's like <laughs> pitched a little, you know, we always pitch our violence like, it's funny in a way. It's weird uh, how we have that sensibility to us. And then there's this austere movie that's like, this is what this violence actually looks like. It's not beautiful. Right. It's not pretty. It's not opera. It's not a Renaissance painting. It's not a fun time at the movies. It's not a cartoon. It's suffering. And this is what it looks like. It's real. And it's like, mm -hmm. it's real. Mm -hmm. And you're just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God damn, man. So I, I, it's like, uh, let me ask you guys, would you recommend to people who feel like they could handle it angst, Megan? It depends. It, it, it de I, I, th I mean, you, you gave the great um, qualifier if they could handle yes. it um, yep. because obviously that depends on, on the audience and the person because different people find different things triggering, of course. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a worthwhile film. I think it is mm, – mm worthwhile either if you can't watch it at least reading about it but yeah but also recommendation feels weird and wrong too it does yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, I guess i have less reservation in recommending it again as long as you are the kind of person who can watch an irreversible or you're the kind of person who can watch those kind of films which mm -hmm. are a little this is way more realistic than even that film and gaspino has Cited this film as one of his big influences in terms of how he makes films. Yes. So which makes a, perfect sense. Yeah, DNA sense. between that one and this one. Um, <laughs> even like, the camera work yeah. is quite similar. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, if you can watch a Gaspar Noe film and go, yeah, all right, I can, 
again, I want to be very careful here, not enjoy it, but I can appreciate that film right. and that's, the message that's it was trying term. to convey, yeah. then angst, watch it. But if that kind of shit puts you right off and makes you sick to the stomach, then steer well clear. I would say if you turn the movie on and you think it's funny and you're laughing at it or you enjoy it, seek help immediately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seek yeah, Enjoy is not the right word. Immediately. Yeah. I will say yeah. the Tangerine Dream score is enjoyable. I always love when they show up for a film score. That adds to that kind of man hunter weird yes. dream vibe. Oh, yes. God. Yeah. <laughs> God damn this movie. This is one that's going to stick with you, man. I've seen a lot of gnarly shit, and this is uh-huh. going to stick. It, it, it's, it's, I'm in the same position as you guys are because, from a filmmaking perspective, like take again the content, put the content to the side. Mm-hmm. God damn, this is an expertly directed and shot movie and mm-hmm. sound design and the score. And like, this is a. Um, great film but then the, then the content is so extreme and realistic and unrelenting that it's like uh, it's hard to recommend so i would say if you have a movie subscription and you can appreciate metatextual stuff and are not would not be scarred or triggered or negatively impacted by extreme realistic unrelenting depictions of sexual assault and violence this would be a movie for you if you if if a regular old American slasher gives you nightmares, don't ever watch this film. <laughs> oh no! Now let's move on to a movie from March seventh that I sh- I'm sure gave absolutely nobody nightmares <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> Deadly lessons. Stark contrast. <laughs> By complete stark contrast, <laughs> it's High School Killer. So you can't think of anyone who would want to hurt Althea. I haven't been here very long. I told you. You seem to have been here long enough to get involved in a classroom fight with her. Well, yeah, I did. I mean, she purposely spilled paint all over my shirt. A mysterious death occurs in an old all-girls school during summer sessions. This movie, okay. Donna Reed, Diane Franklin, Ali Sheedy, Bill Paxton, Bart Simpson. They're they're all in this movie. This was an ABC, rather, Monday night movie aired at like 8 p.m. on a Monday night in the early spring of (laughs) 1983. And the tagline is, kiss the girls and make them sigh, hunt them down and watch them die. Which is a one disturbing. (laughs) Yes. What a great slasher tagline for (laughs) a murder. She wrote Scooby-Doo fucking plot. This, 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 I knew at, when I, when I set this show up, I knew we were going to get to this point where in three years, and if you want to go back to the seventies, I'm fine. Within 15 years, not even quite, not even, I was just say 10, then 10 years, we've gone from transgressive outsider cinema to big studio cash-ins <laughs> to TV movie of the week. <laughs> this is what I talked about in the last episode, the mainstreaming of this genre, which that just pretty much means it's fucking dead. <laughs> this movie is the fucking death of the slasher. If Wes Craven's <laughs> ass wasn't reading the LA Times about Vietnamese and Southeast Asian immigrant children dying in their sleep, we were fucked. Because this movie sucks. <laughs> this is... Yep. One of the absolutely worst slashers I've 
ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> this is one of the this is horrendous even by TV movie standards. It feels I know the 70s didn't really end until like 1985, but this feels so the music from this movie feels like 1973 fucking television show. I mean, it's just <laughs> God, this sucks. Everything about it sucks. You had Diane Franklin as your main lead at the peak of her popularity. And you just like all of these people, and you can't do anything with them. Horrendous. Any moment I, I thought Jessica Fletcher or fucking Matlock was going to walk in stage right. <laughs> I wish they this. had. I wish they had. <laughs> it would have been better. This is boring horse shit. Okay, that's my entire review. Paul, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> so you can yeah, I don't join me. <laughs> don't disagree with anything you said there. My first night was, oh, God, it's a PG TV film. <laughs> and then it just went downhill from there. Yeah. Uh, the only mild bit of surprise I got was, oh, hey, Bill Paxton's in this movie. Oh, hey, like you said, Bart Simpson's in this movie. That's kind of <laughs> funny. <laughs> that was where it ended. Like, I know Bill Paxton ends up being a great actor and rest in peace, but dear God, he, along with every single person in this movie, stinks. There's not a single convincing <laughs> role in this film. It's a fucking goddamn police procedural again, somehow, while somehow oh. also being this ridiculous kind of high school romantic kind of oh does this boy like oh, she's gonna get over there oh what about this teacher is he having sex with the with the students <laughs> it's the worst things of all the, of those genres compiled together paul the moment the sheriff was like some people throw things away and forget they even exist and don't value other people to the headmistress of the to donna reed I was like, well, you're the fucking killer, buddy. And that's your mom. And she orphaned you. And and, and then I got us. That was in the first 15 minutes of this thing or 10 minutes of this thing. It's, oh, fuck. And I just would, would any school. There's another movie on this list that deals with this in a much more comedic and in somehow intelligent fashion, which is would any school. This isn't even regular school hours. This is a summer session of kids that are falling behind for some reason or another, either behaviorally or whatever. And they're yep. trying to get him caught up for the next school year. This is an all-girls wealthy prep school. The first time somebody drowns, maybe they keep the school open because that's an accidental death. Then it's some, some, when somebody's butchered in the horse stable, these wealthy parents are coming and getting their fucking kids. It, it's oh, so yeah. ludicrous after girl after girl after girl <laughs> goes missing, turns up dead, that nobody shuts the school down. Nobody even tries to shut the school down. The headmistress basically says to the cop, and we can't let this get into the papers. It wouldn't be good for the school, you know. That's right. <laughs> it's like pieces. That's- well, I will just say it was an accident. You know, yeah. it's like, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> so stupid. This is like combining elements of pieces, that kind of element, along with our one of our favorites from last episode, Deadly Games, where yes. the police officer who didn't actually kill the first person, but was inspired by yes. what happened to that first yes. person to run around and murder everyone else. But that somehow this is even so worse. accident just so happened to give me the, the, the taste for blood. What? You know, yeah. I'm going to use that as the cover to get revenge on my mom for killing these yeah. girls. That Which I was just waiting she, for this opportunity. What? Yeah, she's always prioritized over me. And it's like, oh, God, I don't care. Megan? <laughs> yeah, please. I don't even care enough to talk about this movie. <laughs> like i agree with everything you both said this movie was boring and it's like i just don't care how do you waste this much talent like there's so much talent in this cast 
How do you wait? How do you waste Ali Sheedy? How do you waste Bill Paxton? Even Donna Reed is wasted here. Like, wasted. what is happening? It it just it blows my mind. Yep. yep. <laughs> it's so shit. It's not worth giving any more time to. Let's. No, it, it just made me want to watch everything else this cast had been in. Th- that's it. <laughs> it made me want to watch Murder She Wrote. That's, that's, I was like, oh, well, okay. I always want to watch Murder She Wrote. So let's yeah, fire up Murder She Wrote. Yeah. Let's fire up the later seasons where she's in VR and shit. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go. Oh you know, but to your point, Paul, why are we still in police procedurals? God, Ugh. haven't we transitioned away from those? Like, uh, no, pivot to something else. <laughs> that's what I mean, though, right? Don't isn't this sort of like the genres you <laughs> like? <they're, laughs> I like as like at least Ogroff was interested in the sense of like it was a different culture's yes perspective on a veteran, but I am sick to death of watching Vietnam veterans slash people. And I am sick to death of police procedurals. I was sick to death of police procedurals in nineteen eighty. That's enough. Yeah. But, and and <laughs> and also the murder mystery, and I understand we've talked about this ad nauseum. This genre, its roots are in murder mysteries, right? Yes. Like that that's that's where it really mm-hmm. comes from. It's a spiced up murder mystery. But you said in the last episode, Megan, good murder mysteries, non-slasher related, are hard to come by in movies and TV. They're hard to come by. It's really hard to make a compelling murder mystery that keeps you engaged, that's actually a mystery that people don't figure out. It also makes logical sense, right? And, mm-hmm. and it, when it's revealed, you're like, oh, yeah. Like, it's it's very hard. The idea that they're, they're going to continue, and that's what we're going to do our next film, Sweet 16, to make these murder mysteries that either are not sensical or are so boring. Thank I you. can't stand it. But you know what's what's really interesting? I agree with all of that. I love a good whodunit. And I do think it's fascinating that we're kind of seeing a resurgence of the whodunit, like in a cozy way, like with Enola Holmes, with Kenneth Branagh's remakes of Agatha Knives Christie out. films, with Benoit Blanc and Knives Out. Like, I yep, think yep. it's really fascinating that we're getting this. Kid I detective. Just wish- Yep, yep. Yep. I wish we were getting it at this point with slashers. <laughs> Not necessarily cozy, but in the, in the sense of being entertaining and compelling <laughs> and smart. <laughs> well, okay. So what it feels like to me, and you guys can correct me if you think I'm way off base, is as more and more people are trying to cash in on the genre, it's like, okay, well, let's get the kills. Let's figure out what our big kill gags are going to be and get those special effects. And then we're just sort of lacing... The, the murder mystery is almost filler in between the deaths. It's yes. just, well, we, we got to get to feature length. So what is this going to be? Well, make it a police procedural, make it a murder mystery. And, and it's just tiresome. There's no mm-hmm. thought between like, I don't want to go back, but there's no thought between how does that board game relate to <laughs> how these kills are happening? You know? Yes. How, how does an archaeological site tie into why people are being murdered? Like, like it's just, uh, there's a vague metaphor there, but is it going to go explored? Fuck no. I'm talking about Sweet 16, which came out March 18th. In Everything moved. Maybe we should get together sometime. Something evil is here. Sweet 16. Rated R and 17, not admitted without parent. An archaeologist brings his wife and teen daughter to a like a desolate town near sacred First Nations lands. 
and suddenly vicious deaths begin to occur around their daughter just as she's about to turn sweet 16. I will say this. This movie was a video store staple, at least around me, man. This cover, this tape was fucking everywhere. And what's so strange about it is the movie only got like the most minor regional releases. In fact, it was released in three cities, Anniston, Alabama, Biloxi, Mississippi, and Detroit, Michigan. Very specific. This thing was on television constantly. This, this Sweet 16 was on USA constantly. I fired it up. I was like, oh my God. I saw this when I was like eight years old. And <laughs> nice the, reunion. <laughs> the, yeah. And I, I you know, as it was unfolding, I was like, oh God, I remember this one. I'm sorry, but the dark and stormy night, Gothic Manor opening as she's dreaming about on the murder mystery book that she's read that ends up tied into fuck all. But I was like, this is more <laughs> Scooby Doo bullshit. This is another Scooby Doo slasher. <laughs> But do you know how excited I was for this gothic opening? I was like, we're getting a gothic slasher. I was so excited. It'll never happen. And then my hopes were dashed. (laughs) A red herring who is literally a a person in red face is awful. Okay. Let me, I got to get this. I got to get this one off my chest. (laughs) There are a series of ideas in this movie. That some of them are interesting, right? Like uh, uh, the idea that the the archaeologist feels entitled to <laughs> the sacred yes. artifacts of these people. He's like, "Well, they're mine," and it's like they're clearly not. And the movie seemingly is making a commentary about that. Mm-hmm. And the idea of again that the racism of the local people would lead them to think that well, this, these indigenous people or these you know these these locals who are descendants of the indigenous people. Are they're going back to their their savagery and they're butchering people? Like, okay, that could be interesting. That could be like, yeah, like like I don't want to go back and say butcher baker nightmare maker, but the homophobia of the cop blinding him to the mm-hmm. murder, the racism of the locals could be like you know pigeonholing these people and da 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 and all this sort of shit, and that could also play into the whodunit aspect of it. And that, but it's that all feels so underdeveloped. And it does kind of wrap up, but it's like, yeah, he stole the knives, but he didn't kill anybody with him. And then after they beat him up, the police beat him up. At the end of the movie, the cop's just like, well, <laughs> got a real shiner, don't you? And he's like, yeah. And that's it. There's no apology. There's no <laughs> There's no recognition that Jason Longshadow, that, you know, his grandfather, his father was dead. There's no, there's like, there's no... There's no acknowledgement of him as a human being. He just has a bandage on his head, and that's it. The Melissa love theme that plays at the end, which is like, oh my Melissa. god! <laughs> so, how many of these slashers have 1980s love themes in them? It's fucking wild. <laughs> it's it's another holdover. It's like Brian's song. It's like, what is this? Mm-hmm. 1977? What the fuck are we still doing? <laughs> the absolutely wild third act twist that not a single human being I feel could ever have possibly guessed because it makes no sense. Even though we have a 25 minute scene where the sheriff is going through microfiche, even that scene didn't, I was like, what the fuck? What are we trying to communicate here? I I didn't understand at all. I knew where it was going. I knew who the killer was. So what guy, what, what tipped your hat? 
what tipped my hat was that she comes back to town and no one recognizes her. No one, not a single soul. Uh, and I'm like, this is too suspicious. Did you f- completely figure out that she had taken her sister's identity? <laughs> and all no, that? not that part. The I sister just knew committed she was the killer. suicide in a mental institution <laughs> and, or whatever. And the other one was so in a mental institution. And so she killed her dad and then yep, took her. Yeah, yeah, no, it's that all was all convoluted and ridiculous. Family, I mean, child, as the rest abuse. of the film is. And then the husband's like, wow, what a tortured soul she must have been. Your wife is dead and (laughs) faked her entire identity. That's because he's too busy thinking about Emma Peel and the Avengers. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. The only part of this movie that actually kind of worked for me is the very end. We don't see her face and the kids go over to her like, are you all right, Melissa? Which is a stupid fucking question. And I, the, the idea that the sheriff, actually, I think the sheriff is a pretty good actor. I found him charming. Yeah, but, Bob Hopkins. Yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. I liked him. Yeah. I wanted him in a better movie. I'm like, what the fuck? Me too, this me too. A better movie. Yeah. But um, the, his behavior where he's just sort of like, why don't you go check on her? You're the police officer. You go check on her. Don't send your kids. You send your 12-year-old daughter to go check on the a, a woman who was just almost murdered by her mother and learned her mother isn't who she thought she was. Like, oh, oh, it's awful. So anyway. They go over and like we don't see her face and she's like wrapped up like it. She's like, I'm fine. And then the tracking shot of her into the house. And then she's got like this crazed look and then the knife comes out like that was very effective. But then they hit the love theme. Melissa, are you going to be OK? Melissa, I was like, oh, Melissa's no. not going to be OK. It. No, you were the only <laughs> creepy moment in this entire movie. What a disaster this film is. Hated it. I hated Sweet Sixteen. Wow. Well, Megan? I didn't hate it because I liked the sheriff. I liked that actor. Yeah. yeah. I also found the character, while there are things absurd in this film, I did find (laughs) the character of Jason. And I do like that they had Don Shanks, who is supposedly of indigenous descent, playing a Native American character. I kind of was fascinated by him and the racism he experiences and I I wanted more about him and I wanted more about the sheriff. Yes. yes. But I didn't care about Melissa. I didn't care about Marcy, the daughter, the other daughter, the daughter and their friendship. Although I guess yay that they have a friendship, but like, I didn't care about that. I didn't care about the main plot for the murder mystery. I wanted to know what was going on with the sheriff. I wanted to know what was going on with Jason and I don't know. I will say, like, part of me kind of applauds the film for broaching indigenous racism because it's not something that we see often enough because there are not enough films and TV series that focus on indigenous characters. So yeah, yeah. I guess in 1983, yay, question mark, for at least attempting to address that. But yeah, everything else about this film just falls flat and. Yeah, and it's creepy mm-hmm. because all the adults are lusting after Melissa, who's 15. Like, oh, it's just so thank you, pervy yeah. and gross and creepy. It's just awful. Ugh, but yeah, this movie squanders what good ideas it has. It would be creepier if she wasn't actually 25 years old. <laughs> it is creepy in the movie, but the whole time right. I'm like, this girl is not 16 years old. Oh, this no. Is a, no, this she's is another not. example. She's an adult. Of, of an adult. <laughs> and, and, and it's another example. I don't know if it's this one or I don't know where we are anymore, but was there a shower <laughs> scene? Was there nudity in this one? Does Melissa yes. get naked? Yes. Again, 
there's a shower we're, scene. We're depicting what's supposed to be a 15 or 16 year old, year old being nude. Yep. That's so strange. Yeah, it's gross. Uh, do, <laughs> I can't remember if we see her top off, but it certainly lingers on her in her underwear, underwear. around yeah. her yeah. pelvic region. Yes. And I'm like, yes. this is this is a 15 year old girl. At least that's what the film's telling us. She correct. Is. This is awful. Right, I, I, right, I, exactly. I, I get that she's actually 25 or 22 or whatever. I, well, I you you joke about this to a degree. The the sheriff's daughter, Laurie, you know, her Nan- the Nancy Drew character in, yeah, yeah. in the film, she's actually 23. Yeah. In the film. She's meant to be playing 15. Yeah. That's what, but that's how the, that's how it was done at the time across the board. Apparently she was 19 because I wrote – Melissa was 19. I wrote, okay. if the woman playing Melissa in this is 15, I'm 27. And then I wrote, she was 19. So. I, I know I knew that one of them was 23 because I looked it up, right? So yeah. they, they're clearly adult women. And it, but I'm like, it's so strange that we have adult women who are presenting as 15-year-olds and then we're going to linger on their bodies. It's right. so fucking weird. It's so weird. It's, it's gross. So weird. Oh. It's so weird. It's gross. Is it's exactly simulated underage, like, oh, we're leering at their bodies. Like, it's so, yeah. so strange. It's so strange. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I get the theme. This half-ass theme of digging up Melissa. the past. No, no, <laughs> not that theme. Not that theme. <laughs> digging up the past digs up old wounds, and then there's things that have been buried in the past, and the archaeology, and we're digging it up, and the the First Nations people, and the massacres, and so forth, and then this woman and her trauma, and all this. I I understand in general what they're going for, but goddamn, if this wasn't boring, this. Bad Scooby Doo. I a hundred percent thought somebody's face is going to get ripped off and say I would have got away with it. It wasn't for Marcy and your meddling brother. I, this is ridiculous. That would have been amazing. Never again. I think I landed somewhere between the two of you. This is not a good film, and I think Jason, you were very, very generous to say that they worked out some good kills and then you know worked backwards to to tenuously tie them together. This film and the last film, there's bugger all good kills. Like, they are skimping on the gore in these movies, which is, we're having a slasher film here. Come on. Even in police procedural slash slasher territory, we should have some decent kills. And it's like 1983, just completely forgot about that as a, as a part of this, of this subgenre. Well, the, MPA, the MPAA, and to credit these movies, and then one was for television, but the MPAA was just, had had ruthless. a hard on of ruthlessly attacking slashers in particular. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I can only go on the finished product of what we see, and yeah, it was yeah. very disappointing at that level. But I actually moved that we change the name of the podcast moving forward, and we don't call it the slashers; we just call it Police Procedural. The <laughs> podcast. <laughs> okay, because by this point in time, seriously, like how many times do we have to wow. go around? at least it, at least it wasn't bloody Bo Hopkins who was the murderer. At least it wasn't that. So we did deviate away from that, and I thought. At, at night, at least the film looked pretty good as well compared to what we have yeah, been seeing right. certainly through the deadly lessons that before it. So, yeah, this is not a good film. I didn't enjoy it. It was very boring. The resolution is comical, but not as comical <laughs> as Bo Hopkins' relationship with the file clerk over oh at City God. Hall or whatever the fuck. I like that. What was that about? No, no, no. Who I like that. that? It, was in the wrong, yes. it was in the wrong movie. It's in the it wrong movie. It's a totally the wrong movie. But I, I <laughs> like, I didn't get it at first. But by the end, when it was like they're actually dating or whatever, I was like, oh, okay, I get there. They're I think they of, are dating. Yeah, nineteen forty. Well know it by how little banter. attention yeah. he pays her. <laughs> yeah. No, he doesn't hate her. No, no, no. no. 
No, no, no. Their but dynamic he pays is no weird. Like, oh, jeez. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. And she's I, throwing herself at him. I, I thought we were going to date. I oh, liked it. I'll make you some food and I'll bring I like you here. Maybe you'll pay me some Wrong attention. Wrong movie. Right. And then his daughter is like, oh, when are you going to get married again? You need some someone to take care of the domestic chores around here. Yes. What? What is this progressive bullshit? No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I liked it. Very strange. charming. I'm with you, Paul. It was strange. Yeah, I, I will say, though, I didn't find this film as boring as you two. I thought it was fine. It's a mess, but it's fine. And I, I, I'm with Jason on the the reveal of not who the killer was, but why she's killing him. Very <laughs> oh, that weird. was absurd. Like, oh, that, my God. five-minute dump of information, and I was like, what? Okay, okay. Now, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Okay, the sheriff. What's his name? Bo Hopkins, who I like throughout the movie. I thought his performance as absolute fucking campy as that ending was i thought his performance of like he's not gonna hurt you anymore you're okay like oh yeah that was sad and sweet i thought he'd knock that shit out of the park like if 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 it was somebody else in that role boy that would have went way off the fucking rails it was so yeah i thought he's the best part of the movie in my opinion so i would absolutely agree with that yeah 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 this performance passed away last year yeah well r.i.p all right, uh-huh. another movie that has a lot of people you know and has someone behind the camera that's kind of surprising. <laughs> it's The Final yes. Terror, which was released in May of 1983, May 1st. There is nothing to be afraid of. They wouldn't have left us up here all night if there wasn't something wrong. Your friends aren't really missing. They're not really dead. This is just some kind of joke. What the hell was that? That thing that's out there, whatever it is, can't be real. It's just your imagination. This is about some park workers that uh, get stranded in the woods and are targeted by a sadistic killer. If it sounds familiar, it kind of is, but then it really isn't, in my opinion. One of the co-credited screenwriters for this is Ronald Sheshit, who was uh, worked on Alien and a bunch of other yeah. films. It was originally made in 81, but it was shelved for two years because they couldn't get anybody to distribute the film. But then Rachel Ward, Adrian Zamed, and Daryl Hannah blew up. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they were like, well, shit. And then they they basically got distribution off of the back of the fact that three of their their ensemble got famous. It also has Joey Pants as Edgar in an interesting yeah. performance. Joey Pants. <laughs> Mark Metcalf is in the film. You'll recognize him from Animal House and, of course, the famous Twisted Sister video where he plays basically the same character from Animal House. He's sort of our protagonist, but it's more of an ensemble film. And the director of this film is Andrew Davis, who would go on to direct a bunch of good movies, one of which is The Fugitive. And you can kind of see fugitive elements in this movie, I think. I want to start with this one. I did not like like this movie. I've started this movie before and did not finish it. So I was like, oh God, I will finish this time. I did not like this movie up until about the halfway mark. And then I think once this movie gets into what it really is halfway through, I think the movie towards the back end actually goes, it starts to actually, to me, get rolling, get interesting, get entertaining, get thrilling. And there is a scene, and this is kind of an underseen movie, so I almost don't want to spoil it, but there's a scene where they do like a predator-style trap. Yes. With a Yes. And I don't, and again, in 1983, they strapped a camera, like a GoPro, to that fucking log. 
Yeah, they did. And when we see it hit this the dummy and the stunt person, you go with the log, and it's almost seamless. I was like, holy shit. And ju- honestly, and when the killer comes up out of the root system of that giant tree, and, and, and if nothing else, this being shot in the California Redwoods adds so much unique production value to this movie. How small our victims are in comparison mm-hmm. to nature. The fact that it almost feels as if nature itself is coming alive to fucking yes. kill them is, again, the second half of this movie I thought was great. Everything to get there was ho-hum and I was fading in and out. But I loved, loved the second half of this movie. And I loved the last 15 minutes. I thought the fifth, last 15 minutes of this movie were incredible. It, 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 it almost tips, maybe does tip itself into camp campiness but i don't know i still liked it and i thought god something different it's sort of it's a different spin on mountain man sort of stuff and i thought it was interesting megan let's start with you yeah i agree with a lot of what you're saying i think the redwoods they're absolutely gorgeous just in and of themselves and to set a horror movie within them it was a really smart choice and every shot is just gorgeous because you have the natural light and you have the trees looming and everything feels so majestic and beautiful, but also kind of different and otherworldly. And it very Mm. much lends a great lens to the man versus nature survival film. And I really like that we're having a slasher within that element. So I think that's a really smart choice. I also really liked the back half of this film. I think and the ending, like, wow, what a great ending. And those, the way it's shot, those effects, Fantastic. My big problem is the first half of the film is I was very bored. I felt it was very tedious. I didn't Mm -hmm. give a shit about any of the characters. They're all miserable. They're all Mm -hmm. unlikable. Aside from, I think, Vanessa, who is played by Akusia Busia, who is fantastic. I think she is exceptional. She was great in The Color Purple. She is a great actress. I would have loved to have seen her more of her. I think Rachel Ward is fine. She overacts a lot, not just here, but in everything we've seen, like Night School. <laughs> um, Daryl Hannah, fine. Again, I like her in other things. But yeah, but the the characters, we just we don't have they either don't have enough character development yep. or they're just so obnoxious and yep. awful. Yep. And I just was like, can they just die? Can we just get them bumped off? But once you get to the second half of the film, then it really picks up steam. And then it is really fascinating. So I almost wish that the first half had just been jettisoned. And we just almost kind of jump right into the survival aspect of it. Because I think that's really where the film shines. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement with you. I, th- I think there's a there's sort of a micro change in some of the characters after some of them start getting bumped off in that second half where you start to see a little bit more of their humanity. Yes. And it's like, boy, this they're, they're now in real, this is a really desperate situation, right? Like Mm -hmm. attempt every attempt to survive and, and, you know, attack Edgar and, and all this are sort of failed. And you start to actually almost empathize with it. Be like, Oh God, man, like the fuck out of here. If you had built, built more empathetic characters in that first half, the whole movie would have been great. <laughs> yes, yes. 
Yes, yeah. agreed. Rather than just a second half, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 right there with you, Paul. What do you think? Yeah, it's interesting. This is the one I was most interested in because I saw Andrew Davis's name and I'd never even heard of this film, let alone seen it at the video store when I was growing up. So I'm like, this is really strange that something that it's a very underground yeah, seems movie. To have, yeah, to have the production value of of this film seemingly to have not even pinged on my radar at any point in time as a as a big horror film fan. So I was really intrigued going in. I think seeing uh, Joey Pants at the start of the film, and he's really, you know, he, that's I assume what you mean by the camp. He's really, really mm-hmm. going for it in that <laughs> early part of the film, really establishing that he's a bit uh, cray-cray, as my wife would say, and then he just disappears, out and okay. And so then it gets really boring, and it really does you know, slog along, and there's some bamboozling decisions by characters, like including the, <laughs> the, the two people who are meant to be watching over this group of young whatever they are, camp, not camp counselors, but park grounds, national parks, people, whatever they're yeah, doing. Yeah. They decide to bang in the middle of the forest <laughs> while looking for one of their missing people. Of course, that means they die. One of course, because it is a one, slasher. One later on. But I think this film, and you're right, the, the main character, it gets really confusing because the main character seemingly is the biggest asshole of the bunch yeah. of the good people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do we give a crap about this? He's abusing everyone. He's telling the women to shut up. He's He thinks he's, because he's obviously seen some action or trained in some armed forces, whatever, that's the heavy implication. I'm the, I'm the you know, the head honcher here. I'm the one that's going to save the day. He goes ahead and eats a whole bunch of mushrooms and gets killed at the very end. <laughs> What message is well, I, I didn't. I didn't interpret him as that we were supposed to. I thought that his military service was bullshit because one of the other characters was like, "Where the fuck did you serve?" Like, I thought he was a bullshit character, and that was the entire point of his character. Is he's a blowhard. He's, he's got. He's literally the the main lead in the in terms of the credit sequence and in terms of his yeah. most screen time in this yeah. film. It's bizarre. It is. See, bizarre. I, everyone else is playing off him. I think that's interesting, though, that Jason, you think that he was lying about being in Vietnam because he talks, he abbreviates like the Viet Cong. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, oh, so did he serve in Vietnam? But are you saying like you think that he was lying about that? I don't th- I think he's like a machismo guy who maybe was maybe was enlisted or maybe was in country. But I don't I think he's a bullshit artist. I think mm. he's a blowhard. I think he's always running at the mouth. That's their response yeah, he to him. Is. is like, shut up, man. You know, does he know things? Sure, but I, he, I never took him as like that's our protagonist. Okay, normally this guy's relegated. That character's relegated to being fifth or sixth lead, and does get bumped off real at early. Some point in real the early. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that was it. Was kind of a bizarre decision that on that level. But what really perplexes me because I agree, <laughs> the very end of the film. That's what everything should have been. There should be a lot more of that. When they're running down the river and somehow the killer's moving along and dragging a captive with them and keeping up with them as they're canoeing down the river. I'm like, that makes no sense. But anyway, okay, we can assume somehow they managed to do it. That should have been the whole film. Them being pursued towards a point, them being meeting at that point, a big whatever fight like we sort of see. Not really a fight, but a trap gets set and they get the better of them. Great. But like just about everyone lives in this movie. What happened? That's not the way slasher films work. How come seven of the walk out of here, no worries at all? Six of the walk out of here, no worries at all? Sorry, this film should have been 20 minutes longer and at least half of those characters should have been bumped off in impressively over-the-top kind of ways. Then this film would have found more of an audience, I am sure. It's kind of half-assed it in the end. ends up being like a survival thriller and less of a slasher. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's sort of like a teen deliverance mixed with the slashers, really yeah. kind of what it is. Yeah, teen, yeah, teen deliverance, but... 
yeah. So it's playing around the edges here, but never really fully commits. And I think that's why the film suffers and, and never broke out and why they held it on a shelf for two years until some of the actors made a, a level of fame. Because it's kind of like, eh, it does a bit of this, it does a bit of that. And it's, this part's really good at the end, but the rest of the film's not much chop. I am not of the opinion that everybody needs to die in a slasher like you. Not everyone, <laughs> but more than six, more than like literally three people. These people who come out of this circumstance are fucked for life. That's all I like. This is horrendous. This is a, would be a horrendous experience of a feral psycho killer crawling no, out of the woods experience. to pick you off. It's oh awful. So yeah, I, I yeah, I don't know. I this was more effective for me, I think, than it was for you, Paul. Yeah, I didn't hate it. It's especially this week up against some of what it's up against. It's one of the better films, but in the end, I was a bit disappointed and was really wanting more from it. Well, if you're disappointed in the final terror, I can't oh, imagine God. what you think of the David A. Pryor. Let me just say, <sighs> as someone very familiar with the oeuvre of David A. Pryor and his business partner, which we'll get to in a second, I am so grateful that I was able to introduce Megan and Paul to the works of David A. Pryor. And not just the works, his very first film. Of course, I'm talking about, if not the first Definitely one of the first five shot on Shidio movies to get wide distribution. It is July uh, 12th, 1983's Sledgehammer. Now we're going to have some real fun. Hey, an orgy! All right, that's what we're waiting for! You fool that you have. Hey, let's get started. Put your shoulders. Oh, quiet, oh, quiet. Man. I'm talking about a seance. Partygoers uh, go to this remote house and are targeted by former murderous <laughs> occupant ghost who's not dead, who's hell-bent on sledging people to a pulp. I have a philo philosophical question for you both. Can one slash while sledging? <laughs> what one can do is make a really, really <laughs> shitty film while sledging. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say no. I mean, I guess if you had a knife in one hand and a sledgehammer in the other, but... Okay. No, a sledgehammer does not slash. <laughs> David A. Pryor is a famous shot on Shidio. He'd eventually moved to film with films like Deadly Prey, which also stars his brother, Ted S. Pryor, Ted Deadly Prey Pryor, who they went on to do several Rambo clones with a greased-up Ted. If you've seen Deadly Prey but not sledgehammer fans of genre films, he is also greased up here and shirtless for much of the movie, so you're not missing anything. Ironically, Ted is much more charismatic and actorly in this movie, which is his first film, than anything else he does after this. So, God. the entire movie has a Christ exploitation feel to it. It feels like a, a early '80s Christian movie in a weird way. I, David A. Pryor, co-founded Action Pictures International with David Winners. David Winners was one of the stars, well, sort of background players of West Side Story. David Winners directed several films, including uh, Thrashing. And uh, dancing, it's on. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so these guys eventually partnered up and did a bunch of movies like this. And again, they eventually moved into shooting on film. This has all the prior hallmarks of slasher films, but also all the prior hallmarks of any David A. Pryor film, which means slow-mo for no reason, long uncut oh. sequences of characters horsing around. <laughs> <laughs> entire scenes are shown and then re-shown in their in near in their near entirety <laughs> long long uncut establishing shots i mean if you could shoot a movie in real fucking time that's what david Pryor did 
with Sledgehammer, one of the all-time worst movies ever made. Yes, I agree with everything <laughs> you just said. <laughs> but it's here because it, this is indirectly the birth of, not even indirectly, directly, the birth of shot on shittio films in general, and in particular, shot on shittio horror movies and the start of direct-to-video slasher films, which would become ubiquitous from this point forward so uh, the fact that he's like this far ahead of the curve it, it, he has a place in history david a Pryor. yeah okay you've seen all these other films and <laughs> this is the meager beginnings maybe it doesn't sound like it gets that much better so i i certainly won't be going down the david a Pryor rabbit hole after watching this one that whole Don't be sequence so certain. where there's another podcast. <laughs> I was like, Jason might make you watch more Daily Prayer, Paul. Yeah. I did a live <laughs> stream of words. Deadly Prey. I did a live stream of Deadly Prey on the other show. People enjoyed That's it. That's why I know it. I was like, why does Deadly Prey sound so familiar? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> this this film may have a spot in, in slasher history and filmmaking history, but I'll tell you what history that I care about is that, you know – Jason, you made me watch the worst film I've ever seen in my entire life, and it was uh, U.A. Bull's House of the Dead. This <laughs> film, I think, has now oh, yeah. <laughs> usurped that spot. This is way the worse worst... than House of the Dead. Yeah, this is the worst film I've ever seen in my entire life, ever. How so? Was it The Mustard? <laughs> <laughs> was it characters squirting mustard on each other for 25 minutes? <laughs> That was so weird. This, not as not as weird as when Joni and, and Chuck are walking in slow-mo across a garden for four minutes because that's establishing their relationship. What is this shit? It, it was necessary, Sorry, Paul. Megan, it, it had to be continue. in there. I don't this want this whole so episode to, to be a promo for the other show that I do, but if I were to ever do a film festival for that show under that branding... Sledgehammer would be on there. Wow. What? Because you want to torture? Is this a fire festival three? Is it? You want to torture people? <laughs> That's my question. Why? Because I, I think a large <laughs> segment of the people who are true hardcore genre weirdos, they know this movie. This movie is extraordinarily popular and famous in the underground cult movie scene. And I would venture many of the slasher listeners know sledgehammer and know david a prior by name so the fact that i get to introduce this to you and share this gift to a real film critic and a real film snob uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) is probably the peak of my career as a podcaster it's all downhill from here there's nothing to say about this movie it is something that must be seen to be believed and after you've seen it you still believe it yeah it's an experience it's not a film You've alluded to some great moments in the film. The food fight from nowhere. The fact that this ghost slash spirit transforms from a I don't know why he's large, a ghost. I don't. I, I, well, why is he a ghost? He disappears at the start of the movie and he, then presumably He killed his parents and we, or his mom and his lover, which we've seen twice. Right. But he doesn't die. We don't see him die. Why is he dead? Why is he a ghost? Yeah, I, I thought he was dead. I thought that's why we night. see a ghost. Yeah. yeah he he kid, transforms from being a boy. To yeah. being a large man with yeah. a sledgehammer and a mask. And a mask. To being able to walk through walls and doors, being able to transport people inside rooms and then lock the doors. Mind you, most of this happens in super slow-mo. Oh. So a door closing, the latch yep. clicking into place will be in super slow-mo. 90 seconds minimum. Yeah. Just to close and then the latch. Yep. someone putting a hand on the doorknob to open said door will also be in super slow-mo. 
Yeah. And then you get to see some of the worst choreographed fighting with one man with a sledgehammer and one man without, or one woman trying to avoid a sledgehammer. It's just ghastly. It's so bad, but Megan hated it even more than me, so take it away. Uh, I mean, I... I don't know if I have anything more to say. It's so terrible. It's so awful. It's so badly shot, badly. Li- I, I mean, and you know, I, I know I'm harping on the filmmaking mechanics. And the reason why is because you can have a film that is made very cheaply, very poorly by filmmaking standards, and it still has great ideas or it's innovative or it's interesting or it has a good story or surprising visuals something <laughs> and because i lauded you know ograph earlier and that has a lot of issues filmmaking wise but there's something very endearing about that i love the ideas that are happening in that film um <laughs> this there's nothing there there are no good ideas there there's no good filmmaking craft there's nothing here listen if it inspires somebody to pick up a video camera or their phone and to make their own film, that's great. I think more people should be making art and filmmaking and that would be lovely. But that's all I can say about this film. Like this was just torturous for me. This this was this was a torturous experience to watch this film. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. This is yeah. Ted S. Pryor's best performance and oh, Jesus. I'm here for it. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I would say uh, to the weirdos like me, do a triple threat of Orgoff, <laughs> Sledgehammer, and Things. Make a day of it and uh, see if you come out sane on the other end. Orgoff so, is great. Listen, yeah. I, I think Orgoff is great. I maybe, sure. I maybe cap it off with that one. I'd probably start with ooh, Sledgehammer, then I would do Things, and then I would cap it off with Mad Mutilator. So, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm. Uh, Let's move on to a movie I am so excited to hear Megan talk about. It is <laughs> November 18th, 1983. Camp classic, again, in both senses of those words. Yeah. Sleep away, camp. Someone is watching you. Hey, Baba Reba. Someone is waiting for you. Someone wants to scare you to death. Turn it! Turn the wheel! Oh my god! Sleep away, camp. You won't be coming home. Bunch of kids are at camp. Kids start getting kids and people assist with the camp start getting murdered. And there's kind of a weird mystery in between. I don't, I, I don't even know how to describe this other than to say Aunt Martha, played by Desiree oh my God, is one of the all-time <laughs> great fucking characters. Oh, no, that wouldn't do at all. No. What was I going to say? Oh, yes. That, the way it's shot, the fact that it's, it's staged almost like an odd play, her outfit, her behavior, the fact that she's a doctor. Mm. Everything about it is so fucking weird. I love everything about it. Paul, uh, I want to save Megan for last here. Paul, mm. what do you think of Sleepaway Camp? This is the one film I think I'd seen. Well, I watched Angst a little bit before we st- came together to watch all these films, but this is the one film I'd watched a long, long time ago. This is a classic, classic of the genre. Yeah, yeah. You know, it made a lot of money compared to all the other films that we've talked about today. It made eleven million dollars on on a less three hundred fifty thousand dollar budget. And yeah, obviously, it's it's infamous for its final turn and and the reveal. 
not so much of who the killer is, but how that, yeah, I guess it is who, an element of who is yes, the killer, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, in a sense. But you know all along, really, who's doing the killing, just not really who they are. Is that the right way of putting it? I'm not sure. So that's the only reason this film stuck around in, in the zeitgeist and because of that very final decision, I firmly do believe. And yeah, the explanation for it with the crazy aunt is is very, very strange. I think the film itself is pretty, very, very average. The kills are very, very average. But the fact they're killing kids is pretty brave for a 1983 film, even for the 80s, I think. And they, you know, anyone who does wrong, poor Angela gets offed pretty quick. And you get do get set up with your red herring character, and I guess you're meant to believe it's him. Certainly, the camp owner slash runner believes it's him. Amazing. <laughs> those those scenes quite fascinating as well, and yeah, the film him certainly goes pummeling places. that kid, him beating oh, Ricky, wow. or pummeling that kid is just I fucking hilarious. <laughs> so strange. Yeah, Everything really about this movie weird is, choice is it's a very it's strange a movie. series of weird choices and weird mm-hmm. performances. To make one of the movies, I every time I watch it, I love it more and more because I thought, God damn, what a fucking strange, strange film all the way through. Yes, yeah, even the way it opens with one of the most protracted and ridiculous boating accident sequences ever. Filmed. Yes, <laughs> the, the, the characters are on the boat. Look out behind! What he turns around and the girl screaming, gonna, "You're gonna kill them!" <laughs> It's just it's like, incredible. Just turn the just grab the wheel or the the, the engine and slightly turn it. No, well he tries like, and then and then he actually oh. ends up cranking it into full gear. I I mean, it's so bizarre, like so ridiculous. There's the switch shot. that's missing in your brain, Paul. And I'm not going to say it's a defect or that you're disabled, but there's something not <laughs> oh. quite right. And the switch is where your brain goes, "Oh, I know what this is." And you click that switch and then you just laugh and you just enjoy yourself. You don't right, have listen. that. That I switch don't, stays like for off example, and you go, room. this doesn't make any sense. And yep. that's why this movie, beyond the reveal, the, the there's well, there's a bunch of different reasons why this movie has a reputation and is so loved by so many people. The reveal, of course, is one. But it's also that, that apart from the reveal, it is a very strange damn near john waters sort of movie yeah. it is yeah. it is truly a campy film everything that i love about butcher baker nightmare maker <laughs> i love about sleepaway camp because it's such an earnest straightforward film the 1950s b monster movie music they play repeatedly the same stinger over and over and over mm-hmm. again while the you have this uncanny valley of these performances by absolutely everybody is that's just that rare recipe, that combination that comes together for me that makes an incredibly effective, enjoyable, campy film. So I Sleepaway Camp, I think, is an absolute all-timer uh, for a variety of reasons. Love it. Wow. Love it. Okay. Good. Glad you enjoy it so much. Yeah, I, I don't love it. I think it's fine, other than the ending, which is memorable. Megan, what do you think? So I have a lot of thoughts, but I think... That for me, I had read a lot about this film before I ever saw it. Um, So I knew about the reveal. And I read, as I do, a lot of film criticism, a lot of feminist film theory, as as I've said before. And I think for me, the best essay that was ever written about this film, and of course, people have divergent views 
within communities and outside of communities. But the trans feminist film critic Willow McClay has an incredible essay at Clio Journal, which is a film journal. And she writes about watching it as a trans woman. And what she has to say is so impactful and powerful where she talks about how basically it is a deeply transmisogynistic film and that it reifies the problems with trans representation in films and how trans people are seen as not being honest about who they are. And she talks about how it portrays the transgender female body as monstrous and murderous, quote unquote, and that um, where a woman is shown to have a penis to the disgust of others co-signs the idea that trans bodies are freakish. And that mm. at the end, Angela, who we've empathized with the entire time, who is the, you know, the protagonist and obviously becomes or is the killer too, but the fact that her humanity is stripped away and that she is snarling and hissing like an animal. She's no longer human. And that the reveal is not just that she, you know, was born a boy and forced to live as a girl, which is, you know, forced gender identity, and that her body is monstrous. That I mean, that's I think that is extremely detrimental and extremely damaging and a really horrific statement to make. What I will say I th- on the, on conversely is that trans author Capernia Adams has said that she doesn't see Angela as a trans person, that she is forced into this identity uh, the way David Reimer was tragically, and his story is covered in the really excellent documentary, the recent intersex documentary, Everybody. And so even within the trans, there is no consensus amongst, you know, trans people. There are trans people who love this and trans people who don't. But for me, I think that the reveal is so abhorrent. I think there is a better way to have done it, a way that retains Angela's humanity. This is a film that's very clearly queer-coded in in addition to that because we get all of the, you know, Jason, you talked about the campiness and we get all of the men in like very short shorts and in half shirts, which very is very much. campy, very queer, you know, coded, very queer related. We also get the kid's father in the beginning. He is yes. gay and in a gay relationship. So mm. we have that too. So th- there's a lot of queerness embedded into this film, even in the in addition to Angela and her gender identity and the fact that she's attracted to a boy, but she doesn't feel comfortable and she's not sure, you know, who she is. And so I think that when you look at those things, and I think the the way the film depicts bullying especially is really poignant and really accurate. I think it gets bullying really, really well. And I like that there are some characters who are, you know, who call out Judy and Meg for being bullies. And then there are other characters who join in. Like that feels really authentic and realistic. So I... If it just focused on Angela being this shy, introverted girl who was being bullied and the experience of that, then I would like this film because I think the kills are really disturbing and they're really interesting. You know, getting getting assaulted in a toilet by bees and, you know, and, and getting scalded by water, by a boiling pot of water, like those are horrifying and those are different kinds of kills than what we normally see. And then, of course, there's the very horrifying curling iron assault 
um, which is so disturbing. But I think if we stuck with those, I think I would like this film a lot more. But the way it dehumanizes Angela at the very end reveal, to me, it just, it sullies, for me, sullies the whole experience of watching this film. Allow me to respond because I feel like that pigeonholes me and praise the movie as being transphobic. So let me respond. I don't so, think that at all. Well, I don't want listeners to think that. So okay. my experience of watching the movie is I, I already knew like this is one of those movies where like, you know, the ending typically before you've seen it because it's so famous, infamous, mm-hmm. however you want to put it. So I already knew what it was going to be. Didn't know what it was going to look like, but I knew what it was going to be. And I really, again, didn't, it's interesting. Didn't vibe with the movie at all. I didn't understand the campiness of it. I didn't, I didn't have a palette for that kind of stuff. It just didn't make any sense. It was shoddy. It's cheap looking, felt very um, low rent. And it is, it's a low rent movie. And then the mm-hmm. ending I thought was just so bizarre. Now the idea of her, like the body and they're both nude and she's holding the kid Paul's head and he's kind of a sympathetic character throughout the movie as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. that's really fucking disturbing. Mm -hmm. And then the reveal. And then I I just, I never understood the snarling monster and I still don't understand it. I think it's just a really stupid ending, but I I just found the movie kind of icky and icky at the end and whatever. Mm -hmm. But as I got more into horror movies in the horror community, I started to interact with people who were part of the queer horror community and LGBTQ plus Q. And like you said, Megan, this is a movie that sort of splits that community. Because there are people who this is a regular occurrence at queer horror film festivals and they embrace the cast and Felisa Mm -hmm. Rose goes to queer events and is in pride parades and has been embraced as a queer icon and a trans icon, even though she's a cis woman and all this sort of stuff. And there are people, like you said, who interpret it as it's not it's 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 about forced gender identity. So it's Mm -hmm. actually, you know, you you know, uh, the trans experience of feeling like you're in the wrong body. And that's really what's going on with. Angela's she's in the wrong body and was forced that way through bad medicine and bad mm-hmm. people and that's for stuff. And then everything you articulated is the a hundred percent, the opposing view and there's a views in the middle. So yes. this is a yes. extraordinarily complicated, divisive movie, even within the community who's primarily affected by it. So I am completely empathetic to people who are like, this movie paints me or someone I love is a monster, and I hate it for that reason. That's an exceptionally valid response. To your point, Megan, I don't think it's the only valid response because, no, again, no. there are other people in the community who are like, oh, I see it completely. I see it as a, a, a campy gay <laughs> horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I once I started to hear that, it actually recontextualized the movie for it. I said, okay, well, I got to give it a second chance with that lens. And that's the lens that when I went back to it later watching it, that I was like, oh, I kind of see more of, I don't know how much of it is intentional, but the result of that, again, John Waters-esque mm-hmm. sort of, I mean, the, the main camp director who's again trying to cover up these fucking murders. Oh my God. And he's constantly smoking a cigar and he's beating a kid. He's like, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him for you. It's just so, oh, it's so over the top. have a relationship with one of the counselors who's yes. like young enough to be his granddaughter. Oh my God. Yeah, it's disgusting. He's a pedophile. It's as is the cook too. The he's cook a pedophile as well. Yes, James Earl Jones' right. father. Mm-hmm. And oh yep. my God. 
The whole thing is so odd and discombobulating yeah. that I, again, I just take it as uh, I, I'm almost laughing at just how low rent it is of how like it, because what it feels like is it, it feels like a, <laughs> it feels like somebody was trying to outsleeve Sean S. Cunningham, which is really hard to do. It feels like somebody's <laughs> like, what if we made Friday the 13th, a Friday the 13th movie, but more debased, more low rent. <laughs> and and put it forth as a serious effort, but these performances are fucking insane. I mean, this is some insane shit. And I'm of the belief that if it's trying to be campy, it's not effective to me because you're trying to be something. But when you right. put something forth into the world and it and it is campy accidentally, mm -hmm. uh, that's where I find enjoyment out of it. And that's the level to which I enjoy the movie. I don't co-sign on its worldview if it has any or what it has to say about mm -hmm. anybody it's just a very strange fucking film and it was an lgbtqia plus response that made me recontextualize the movie so no and i totally get that i'm i am in the queer community i am queer myself so i completely have heard this perspective for many many yeah, years yeah. and i've heard I, like you said i've heard both in praise of it, in Same. criticism of it, yeah. in the middle. Um, I just think I, I am a cis woman. As far as I know, we are all cis here. I think it's important to voice trans voices both yep. for and against this, 100%. you know, within this. So th that's my only reason in, you know, quoting from trans writers. But no, but you are 100% right, Jason, that they're – like I said earlier, there is never consensus within any community and there are always going to be yeah. divergent opinions and divergent voices. Um, but yeah, but I mean, and that's why, you know, being queer, it was very obvious to me how campy this was and how queer coded this is and, and entrenched in queerness. And I think that's for just for me personally, why the ending made me so sad because I think yeah. if the ending yeah. had been shot differently, you still yeah. could keep mm -hmm. everything else and it would work more effectively. But yeah, but it's clearly going, it's going for shock, right? It's, it's yeah. right. It's right. Slap it you is. In the face as hard as it can. And I very quickly, not to, to belabor any points that both of you have made so eloquently, I steer oh, clear thanks, of Paul. even looking up to see whether, how this was taken in the trans community. Cause I knew it would come up on the show, but my note was, is this offensive? And I'm not positioned to be able to to make that call. It's got to come from, as you say, within the community. And hearing both sides of it is, I think, very powerful. And I think you've done a really great job of representing what I imagine has been a very hotly debated yes, discussion over the years. Very much. And so. we have three more films in this series, which follow on from this as well. So they all st they mostly steer away from that though, because it ends up being right after this point, okay. it's all, they all I think, almost, I, think I saw the second one once and I don't remember much. They're, they're point, horror so. comedies at that point, And they don't really dive into the gender issue right. at all. And then it's Bruce Springsteen's sister, which is very odd. It's a little factoid. Oh, okay. uh, she takes over for Felicia Rose, but, uh, and then Felicia Rose comes back for the fourth, which is, a fourth or fifth, which is just terrible, absolutely abysmal. And if but, I if I can <laughs> add, if I can add the the part that did resonate for me as a viewer and made me think, you know, yeah, those people need to die, which is a sign of at least an effective arc or, or characters in a horror film. Those bullies, very oh, right? happy when, when they got killed off because they did a really good job of, you know, and, and Angela, poor kid, she doesn't have to do much I acting know. in this film. She has to sit there and just look, do like 
wide-eyed whoever's perfect person for it though perfect person yeah she's got like disney Um, cartoon eyes yeah she did great it's a really good point but yeah i was very as much as i wouldn't wish that in real life anyone i was pretty happy that these characters got dispatched so brutally when when they did so well done film you you got a big tick for me on that one there's a lot of people two two things i want to end with uh, on this one is there's a lot of people on letterboxd who mentioned that the first time she speaks it kind of finds her voice and uh, when he's like Paul is really pursuing her, you know, and, and she's mm-hmm. he's like, she's, I forget what her first line is, but there's a lot good of night. people. Yeah. Good night. Yeah. Good night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who uh, in various communities that that's very meaningful to them, that that it's like, she's finding her voice, you know, she's right. There's a character that's being able to finally speak for herself and as an outsider or somebody who's been forced to live an identity that isn't their own. And it was surprising mm-hmm. to me that people would, so many people I saw were so moved by that one line and her, that's this very young woman's performance of this one line and an otherwise like pretty shitty movie. <laughs> so I, that really stuck out to me of sort of like, wow, this there's people that have very strong emotional attachment one way or the other or reaction to this movie, which makes it a mm-hmm. complicated one to talk about because, and they're all valid. So some people find this movie deeply dehumanizing. Others very empowering. Yeah, and that's mm. boy, that's the sub- subjectivity of these movies for sure. The, the other thing we have to talk about is the the body, the physical body that was used for Angela's body uh, was a young Asian stunt performer, actor, person, and uh, w- w- was basically forced into doing the nudity. Right. So, like, did not want to do it because he didn't want his body and his penis in particular mm-hmm. to be the object of ridicule and was and it was ice cold because as with all of these camp movies it's always fucking fall <laughs> like anytime <laughs> you look the leaves are turning even in other uh, nightmare or uh, friday the 13th series it's like well it's clearly goddamn winter when they're filming this shit mm-hmm, but um mm-hmm. like you don't see your breath at night in fucking august or july anywhere in america <laughs> at summer camp i'm sorry <laughs> but yeah he just didn't that was the role he knew what the role was supposed to be but when they got there he didn't want to do it he didn't want to be humiliated and was basically forced by the producers of the movie to do it and so that's i think that's also that's something disgusting. to take into account it's not you know mm-hmm. there's that's icky that, oh that always sticks in my head yeah. too after learning that fact of being like uh you know because it's not yeah that's his real body or right. what his body looked like at that time. And it's like, look how disgusting that body is. That's a real person. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, like I said, this is not not a moral film. I, would, I, would, <laughs> I mean, it's complicated, you know? Yeah, like, And yeah. you could argue good art is complicated, whether you think this is good art or not. But it is. It's complicated. So. <laughs> yeah. I, but this does elicit yeah. very strong reactions, like you said, and, and very strong feelings. And I want to circle back just momentarily to the finding the voice part. You know, if that resonates with someone or with people, that's really powerful. And it weirdly reminds me of a lot of the – divisive commentary around (laughs) Little Mermaid because Little Mermaid is also very much seen as it's very much embraced as a trans narrative because Ariel wants to be in a different body and also she loses her voice but she gains it again you know and so I don't know it's so it is really fascinating to think about these ideas of finding your voice and and bodies and and horror explores the body in so many fascinating ways 
But yeah, there is a lot of really incredible commentary and opinions about this film out there that are just absolutely fascinating to read. Now to end this commentary, our commentary on a slightly lighter note, maybe the most impressive effect of this movie is the, and it's ham fistedly done because it's cut away, cut back to cut away, but cut back to but the <laughs> sex offender boil where he oh, ends up, oh. his face ends up being boiled and it ends up bubbling, you know, by yep. the end, it's like very early bladder effects, which I th- you didn't think you'd be getting bladder effects in a sleepaway camp movie, but everything else about that's objectionable too. But, yes. but very satisfying to see that guy get fricasseed, in my opinion. <laughs> and to have the doctor keep talking about how much torturous pain he's in. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. They really yes. lay that in. Yes. They're they like, lay yeah, it this on. guy's, this guy's going to suffer a psychotic break from the amount of pain he's going to experience 24 <laughs> seven for the rest of his life. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's time to give out some awards. Let's start Megan. Who is the best final girl this weekend of 1983? So this is a tricky one because I don't think there are really a lot of good final girls. My answer might be very controversial because I thought about arguably, and I saw that there's a really great um, queer horror essay set of essays that looks at Sleepaway Camp as one of them. And it's called It Came From The Closet. And Mm. the the person who wrote it, um, they talked about how Angela is arguably a final girl as well as the killer, which is a really interesting thing because, so I would say Angela, the only other person I could think of is not a person. It's the dog from angst. (laughs) 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 Paul, final girl, best final girl. Literally my note here is there are pretty much no final girls in this series of films like sweet 16 who is it there could argue that melissa oh god (laughs) (laughs) deadly lessons useless even though she sort of works kind of eventually works out what's going on there angst clearly not the final terror there's a whole bunch of women and men binding together because we had too many people survive hence no final girl too many people to my point Yeah, so I came down to sort of sleepaway camp is the closest is Amanda, but I obviously had an issue with that given that she's the murderer. So, Oh, you mean Angela? Angela? Angela. My apologies, Angela. Yes. Wait, Paul, so did we both have Angela? Well, if I have to have my choice, it's Angela. If I can go pass, I'm passing. Well, you can't pass, so it's Angela. The (laughs) best final girl of 1983, according to me, is Angela from Sleepaway Camp. Yes! <laughs> it's official. It's official. Yeah, yeah. Um, because to me, it was like she's so empathetic throughout 99% of the movie. Yeah. You feel yes. so horribly for this person. And then even with the real sort of beyond the body grotesquery of it, like the flashback and the reveal of like, oh, two boys, that just wouldn't do. Oh. You're like, you're just that little kid, the head bandage, sort of like, oh, man. You just, I still feel for Angela, even at the end. Even at the end, me I'm too. still like, me she's too. still a sympathetic character to me. Um, so, yeah. So, that was very effective. So, yeah, it's Angela. Okay. Let's move on to best kill. Paul, let's start with you this time. What's the best kill of 1983? This is really tricky this week to, to give the awards out to the films of this blood pool because, as we've discussed, the, the slasher genre itself seems to be really on life support and... It's not doing any of the things particularly well. Even last episode, we had some wonderful kills, particularly from a couple of the films. In the end, I'm going with what you highlighted, Jason, from The Final Terror. I'm going the death of the stalky 
wild mountain woman with the trap that they set up and the log coming down, slamming into her and picking her up and impaling her on it. I thought that was by far the most memorable kill through the course of these films. Megan? I have to change my answer because that's the better answer. My answer was initially (laughs) Ograf when he acts as a guy and we get this weird vision and blood smeared on it. And because a lot of the kills are not memorable, but no, yeah, the log kill scene, the final one in the final terror, I completely agree. That is the best kill. I'm going to have dissent here. I'm sorry. Couldn't last forever, could it? No. (laughs) It's the curling iron kill and sleep oh yeah okay i think that is just egregious and oh so disgusting horrendous mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. and the way the hands shoot up in the shadow and everything yeah like, well that's that's the one that just, happened to a nicer person oh wow man one of the all-time bullies in film one of the all-time most despicable bullies i don't know what it is Judy, about that girl terrible oh my god i've seen a lot of bullies in a lot of camp movies and mm-hmm. this one I hate the most. I cannot stand her. Oh, my God. Right there with you. Yep. Okay. Uh, let's go with best poster slash VHS box art. Megan? Sleepaway camp. Paul? Boringly, 100% agree. Sleepaway camp. Shoe, <laughs> big knife through it. That's Hat good. trick. Sleepaway camp. It's iconic for a reason. Okay. Cult classic time. Paul, what is the movie that you think is underseen? Might not be good, but you enjoyed it. Or if you didn't enjoy it, you think people should see it, experience it, whatever. Cult classic. Boy. Why is it I whinge about this? <laughs> <laughs> I whinge about this category every every episode, and this is the hardest one of them all to do. Uh, I'm going to go with the final terror. It has enough there in the back half of the film to make it culty, and it's clearly underseen. So, yep. Let's go with that one. Megan? Oh, Graf, the Mad Mutilator. Whoa! Okay. Yep. All right. I thought it was a gem. <laughs> Paul's face. Just pure disgust. <laughs> no, not disgust. Just, oh, man. Okay. I, I would say I'd give another shot, but I'm not going to. Never watching that movie again. I completely understand. I don't know if I need to see it again, but <laughs> I enjoyed it. Megan, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Paul, I'm sorry to side with you. I believe the interesting cult classic of 1983 is The Final Terror. Now we're getting down to Megan, what you believe is the best flick we watched from Slashers of 1983. Tell us what it is and tell us out of five sharp objects, how many sharp objects would you give it? All right. Well, I want to give a runner-up to Angst because I think it is the best made film. Yeah. yeah but yeah. that is not the best film for me. Yeah. So I did not go with it. My best is what you guys picked for Cult. I'm going with The Final Terror as the best film because that second half is just so good that I think it makes up for for me was a weak beginning. And I'm going to give it three sharp objects. I'm going to go next because I think everybody knows what my answer is going to be, right? Yes. So it's Sleepaway Camp. I give it four out of five sharp objects. Paul? All right. Well, maybe for the first time on the slashes, we've got each got a different film because I'm I'm going with Angst. I think oh. Angst is the best film, made film, that we've seen in this entire show that we've been doing thus far. It probably will be beat now, but at this point in time, as it stands from nine, up until 1983, there is no better film made. It is There is no more effective film that we've talked about. It is awful and horrible and disturbing and all the things we said, but it is undeniably brilliant filmmaking. So I'm going to give it three and a half sharp objects out of five. If it was more enjoyable somehow, I don't know how it could be given the subject matter, it would be higher. 
Understandable. Okay. Well, mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys can believe it, but we're coming up to kind of what we are planning to be our penultimate episode. It's the last year that, at least for this limited series, we're going to look at. We have some other things in the works. We'll talk to you more about Maybe. that later. We're going to come up on 1984, what we deem to be the last year of the golden age of the slasher, which means we're going to be covering January's Rocktober Blood. <laughs> um, and this again, this is always with the asterisks of if all of us can find it. January's yeah. Fatal Games, <laughs> July's Splatter University, October 31st, Halloween's Day of the Reaper, November's A Nightmare on Elm Street, and December's The Initiation. So that's going to be our blood pool for next week. Megan, where can people find us on social media? You can find us on Instagram at The Slashers Podcast and on Letterboxd at The Slashers. Wow. 1984. Can you believe, Megan and Paul, that we've kind of made it to the end of our journey? We're almost the end of our journey here. Almost there. Yeah, I can't almost. believe it. It's been a hell of a ride. Some of it very, very <laughs> impressive. Some of it <laughs> scarring for life. <laughs> That's a job well done, I guess, in my book. So um, <laughs> with that, all I can say is leave you with a little piece of advice, dear listeners. Whatever you do, wherever you are, remember this. We'll catch you later. <laughs>